Hi, Daniel here. This week's episode of The Ripple is sponsored by Deps, a private Maven repository service that I run. I created Deps because I wanted to use a Maven repository to host my company's private artifacts, but I didn't want to have to run a server. There's all the hassle of setting it up, keeping it patched, monitoring it, backing everything up. It was just too much work. Deps provides a cloud-hosted Maven repository, so you can get back to focusing on what really matters. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting me by signing up for a trial at deps.co. Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about closure IDEs with Colin Fleming, the creator of Cursive, a closure plugin for IntelliJ. Welcome to the show, Colin. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And first time, I think, having a fellow New Zealander on the show. So yeah, that's that's nice. We're both represented. Yeah, it's nice to talk about closure with someone who's within a thousand kilometers of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think probably many people will be uh, aware of what you do, but just in case people haven't heard of Cursive, can you explain what Cursive is? Why would someone want to use it? Sure. So um, so Cursive is it's an editing mode for Clojure, and it's integrated into IntelliJ, so it's basically a plug-in to IntelliJ. So obviously it's very attractive to people who are coming from the Java world, but people tend to use it actually coming from all sorts of backgrounds. I think it's uh, it's one of the... It's one of the most developed environments for programming Clojure. I think probably Emacs and Cursive are the two most most highly developed ones that people use these days. And of the two, IntelliJ is the most familiar to people who aren't already familiar with Emacs. So you get kind of standard key bindings and for cutting and pasting and exiting the application, things like that. It just behaves a bit more like a you know text edit or notepad or whatever. It's, uh, so for people who are completely new to Clojure, it's often an easier starting point. So people do come to it from, from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, so currently it is just a plugin for IntelliJ. I actually, for the longest time, I have had plans to make a standalone IDE. So JetBrains actually have the facility to create standalone IDEs from the IntelliJ platform. Unfortunately, the, the build process for that is fairly inscrutable. It's not very well documented. I think that's getting better. There are more people wanting to do that for various sort of in-house IDEs and things that they're building on the IntelliJ platform. So there is um, more better documentation around that coming soon, hopefully. So at some point, I may be able to relatively easily make a standalone closure IDE from Cursive, which would be nice, I think, for a lot of people. I've spoken to a few people in education, for example, where it'd be really nice for students to just be able to download a single thing and get going with closure and everything configured. Yeah, uh, that would definitely be a good use case for that. And can you talk a little bit more about what the IntelliJ platform is? Um, because there's more than one editor from JetBrains. Right. So IntelliJ started out live actually just as a Java refactoring tool, and then it gradually developed into a Java IDE. And the Java IDE is what most people know it for, I think, as probably JetBrains' largest product and uh, and their best known one. But a couple of releases, well, quite a while ago now, I think in about 2000 and 10, 2011, they started refactoring it and splitting it out into two parts. So they split it out essentially into an IDE building platform, more or less. And then the Java, the Java integration was built on top of that as a plugin. So they essentially developed a plugin architecture and refactored their Java support to uh, to use that API. That, that's still not 100% done. So the Java support is still kind of blessed in the platform in a number of ways, but it has meant that they can develop a lot more IDEs on top of that. So JetBrains actually have a complete suite of IDEs now. So they have IDEs for Python and Ruby and C++ and PHP and Go, and they have 
specialized IDEs for working with databases. I mean, they have a really wide range of tools now. And they're all based on the same underlying platform. Android Studio would be the biggest example of an IDE that's not produced by JetBrains. So that's actually produced as a collaboration between JetBrains and Google, mostly at Google. So Android Studio is actually also based on, on the IntelliJ platform. I think they switched over a couple of years ago from something based on Eclipse. So platforms like Eclipse and NetBeans were more explicitly designed as platforms from the very start, where the IDE just happened to be an implementation of the platform. And in my previous job, actually, I was, I was building an IDE, a visual IDE for credit card transaction processing. And IntelliJ had been available as a platform. We would have used that at the time, but it wasn't. So we just used a kind of swing library on top of that. But even at that time, Eclipse was much more developed in that sense. Like you could actually get books on how to how to develop tools on the Eclipse platform. And I think the JetBrains platform is still definitely lagging in terms of documentation about how to how to do that sort of stuff. It's getting better these days, actually. The last couple of years, they've, they've improved that a lot. So Cursive is a plugin that sort of is similar, maybe not quite as blessed as the Java one, but sort of in that sort of plugin architecture, but for Clojure instead of Java or Python or Ruby. Exactly, yeah. So the Java one is still pretty special. Cursive uses a lot of the functionality from the Java plugin for all the JVM stuff it needs, the JVM interop, so introspecting classes that are available to the platform and that sort of thing. But yes, that, that's broadly correct. It's more or less the same as, say, PyCharm, which is which actually is just a plugin because it was developed later. And then the other one that I that I use as reference a lot is is Kotlin because that's probably the most the most complicated plugin available for a JVM language. I guess Kotlin and Groovy are the two because the Groovy support is actually built in to IntelliJ and that's made by JetBrains and Kotlin is also made by JetBrains. Um, but again, Kotlin is quite a quite a different language to Java in a lot of ways. So that support is built in and I use that as examples of how I should do things quite a lot. But but yes, that, that's broadly correct, right? I mean, essentially I'm doing the same as the, the Kotlin plugin development team are doing within JetBrains. And their code is open source, uh, or most of it is, so you can look at it and take from it as you need. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think a lot of people, so IntelliJ is a, is a commercial product, but they, a lot of people don't know that they actually have a free and open, most of the basic Java support is actually free and open source. So it's all Apache licensed um, and, and that's actually completely open source. So they... So all that code of the actual platform is available, and that includes the Groovy plugin, for example, and the Python plugin, because PyCharm is actually part of, of the IntelliJ code base. And then Kotlin, the Kotlin plugin is also Apache licensed. Um, in fact, everything around Kotlin is the, um, the language itself and all the standard library and, and the IntelliJ plugin as well. That's all open source as well. Nice. So I hope that gives people an understanding of how Cursive works at a high-level architecture. Uh, and so. Digging in a little bit more deeply, there's a bunch of features in the IntelliJ platform, you know, searching for definitions and searching for variables and things that are sort of not language specific necessarily. And so are there hooks in IntelliJ that you can hook into for that to sort of provide those features to Clojure users? Yeah, there are. So so IntelliJ has this standard idea of, of references. So something... Um, so. I think one of the main distinctions that an IDE like IntelliJ or, or Eclipse or something like that compared to what I would kind of broadly classify as text editors, which are things like Vim and Emacs and so on, is that it actually, so it actually lexes and parses 
all the source code and the and the editors that are open. So it actually builds essentially an AST, like a, a, a tree structure of the whole program while you're actually working on it. So, and that's what allows it to do much more sophisticated language analysis. Like most tools that are more kind of text-based are not really aware of the semantics of the language that you're working on, that they're really just working on, on the text level. So Emacs, for example, has things like CLJ Refactor and they actually go much further. So they actually give provide more like a, an Emacs, uh, more like an IDE kind of functionality, sorry, to Emacs. But most Emacs um, programming modes really just work on the text itself. And they often have quite sophisticated understanding of the text, but they don't really do any analysis of the program semantics in any, in any meaningful way. So IntelliJ actually does that. So uh, in order to integrate Clojure into it, I had to, I had to develop a parser and a, a Lexer and a parser rather that... Um, that essentially analyzes closure code. And, and so it has this idea of references, basically. So elements within the program that reference other things. So if you imagine a, a local function body, you know, you have like def, um, def in my function, and then it takes X and Y as parameters. And then within the function body, you use X and Y as essentially as local variables that have come from parameters. The usages of X and Y within the function body are considered to be references to the declaration of the parameter. So when you have defin my function, and then you have the uh, in, in the parameter vector you have x and y. Those are are the declarations of the parameters, and then the uses within the function body contain references to them. And what's really interesting in the IntelliJ platform is that references can be cross language. So, for example, in the Java case, traditionally there's been an awful lot of of enterprise Java stuff that's defined in XML files, <laughs> so <laughs> for better or for worse, and um, and so they they needed a way to be able to refer from XML things to Java code, and sometimes vice versa as well. You can have elements in Java that refer to things that are conceptually created within XML files. Um, so the nice thing about that in Clojure is that, particularly if you're working in JVM Clojure and you have uh, and you're using interops, so things like the methods and so on actually contain references to their Java um, counterparts within the IDE. So the nice thing about that is that all the navigation and stuff kind of comes for free and it works cross-language. So in cursive, you can very easily navigate. You can navigate around your Clojure code with no problem, but you can also very easily navigate from, from your Clojure code to any Java code that it references. If you're working with ClojureScript to a certain extent, that also works for jumping to JavaScript declarations, although that's, that's much harder. My, my JavaScript support is not as good as it could be. But yeah, so, so they have this idea of references, and with that, then you get a lot of your basic um, IE functionality. So things like, where are all the uses of this declaration? So where is this function used? Where is this local variable used? That I find these things incredibly useful when I'm developing. I don't I don't understand how people can't really use them. It's not the same as using something like grep. So in IntelliJ, with a keyword, for example, you can search for usages of that keyword across your whole project, and IntelliJ will also find usages where it's been destructured as a as a local variable using a keys destructuring or something like that. So, and again, it's because Cursor kind of understands the semantics of Clojure code. Um, so the, a lot, of, and that's the basis of a lot of interesting things like renaming things, for example. So when you when you rename something in the editor, you use those references to figure out where all the usages are that you have to rename, where the declaration is. And then the platform contains hooks that I use to work out how each of those uses should be renamed. 
the other thing I just want to mention for people who may not be sort of deeply steeped in in these editors is that the the other sort of difference because you might think, well, I can do a lot of it in Emacs, but the difference is that uh, Cursive does this all offline or without a running REPL. There's no code executing in, in a running REPL to be able to do all of this. It can do it statically. That's right. Yeah. So, so Cursive primarily works by statically analyzing the source code. And that's just because that's the way IntelliJ works. So, so I kind of had to do it that way. And, and there is, there's a certain, so with standard closure editors that most people are used to, you're right, you, you have your application running in the REPL and then the editor introspects the REPL to get this sort of functionality because it actually does it by statically analyzing the source code. So most of the basic editor functionality will work without a REPL running. And then if you do have a REPL running and you're, you're using the REPL editor to, to interact with the REPL, at that point it then does more or less what something like CIDR would do where it actually gets the values that, that it needs from the open from the open um, REPL. So it kind of has this, this distinction between two editing modes, which is sometimes useful and sometimes um, surprising for people who are used to, to REPL-based editors, I guess. Um, and, and there are some limitations to it as well. So the main limitation for source analysis is that, is that macros can be quite problematic for cursive. So the problem is, is that in, in a language like Java, for example, it's all right there in the source code. So you pass the source code and you know exactly what you're dealing with. You know what your, what your class is called, what, your, what the methods are within it, what the methods are called and its parameters and so on, because it has a very kind of defined structure. What that means is, is that um, it's very easy to parse and to analyze because it's all very explicit. Basically, you know, for better or for worse, people complain about Java being extremely verbose and explicit, but that does, Java was explicitly designed as a language to be tooled. And it, you can definitely tell because it makes it a lot of the stuff extremely easy in Java compared to what it is in, in Clojure, for example. So in Clojure, when I parse it, I end up with essentially what the reader returns, which is more or less a list of, um, or, or a collection of data structures. So lists and vectors and so on. And then I have to provide analysis on top of that to work out what it actually means. And that's quite hard because macros can really do anything in, in Clojure. So if people use a lot of user-defined macros in their projects, um, Cursive can struggle with that. So I have various kind of various ways of helping with that support that are getting sort of 80% of the way there. But I think people who use very macro-heavy Sometimes, so something like Clara rules, for example, that a lot of people were using, that has a kind of DSL enclosure for uh, for the rules engine. That was something I actually explicitly added support to to cursive for, because a lot of people were really struggling with that. So, so I mean, there are pros and cons to to all these different approaches. I think I actually I, I like the trade offs that cursive has has made, but depending on the sorts of projects people are working on, it can be problematic sometimes. Great. So, what's kind of new for cursive in the last year or so so the two big things that have come out last year i mean i'm always working on bug fixes and small changes and and so forth but the two big new features in the last year have been um par and fur support so i think you had sean lamron on here recently talking about par and fur version three and smart mode yeah. uh, so I, so i integrated that into that that was in 1.7 which is the previous version that came out about six months ago i think and um and then in the latest release, the, it's been support for Depths.Eden, um, which came out in Clojure, Clojure 1.9. So just adding support so that people can use Depths within cursive projects, they can import 
like an important depths project and because cursive has to understand all the dependencies that a project has and where the source folders are and things like that to be able to index it so so the build tool integration can be quite complicated sometimes so so that was that was the big new feature in the latest release right and so did you when you came to integrate the depths.eden and stuff which is i guess when you're using the intellij platform feels like you have to be quite uh, explicit about what you mean and you have to sort of be able to fit it into sort of a certain set of boxes that they that they give you. Are there any kind of open tickets or issues you found integrating Depths.Eden? Um, so so there, are, there are still a few, a few bugs in the depth support, but it's mostly, it's mostly pretty good now. I don't think there's anything, um, anything show-stopping there anymore. There were a few – integrating depths was quite interesting, actually, because depths has kind of philosophically moved away from the need to name things. And IntelliJ is definitely – IntelliJ kind of build integration or, or library and dependency structure really assumes that you can actually – that everything has a unique name. So when you integrate a depths.eden project, the, the, generally if you're just working on a simple – a simple depths.eden project that just has a single depths.eden file and it's just a single kind of module, if you like, that will generally integrate fine. But when you start using um, local root to have chains of dependencies, which really is, is a lot of the a lot of the appeal behind depths, um, that you can easily factor out small bits of code. I've seen it described as kind of micro frameworks. Hmm. So you can very easily extract out small bits of code and you can refer to them and include them in different places with very little ceremony, which is really nice. I've actually, I've been very pleasantly surprised by depth. So I wasn't, when I first saw the presentation and the rationale, I guess I wasn't quite clear what, what the problem it was solving was, what the point of it was, but actually using it, it is, there's a very, a very kind of pleasing simplicity to it, which is actually really nice. But part of part of that is is that so if you use a local root um, dependency within a depths.eden file referring to another depths.eden, there's no name associated with that. So what Cursive will try and do is it will try, try and create a module for each of those basically. So it's a module for your root depths.eden and then a module, an intelligent module in this case for for the dependency. But the problem with that is that I need a name to give that new module. And there's no obvious name to give it because, uh, again, because depths has sort of moved away from naming things. So that that was quite tricky. There's what I basically do there at the moment is I just assume that the name of the directory containing the dependency is meaningful enough to be used as the module name. But and no one's had a problem with that yet. But sooner or later, someone will. And I, I don't really have a good solution for that at that point. So it is there is occasionally trickiness integrating things into into IntelliJ when, I guess, when new functionality is developed without IDE support in mind um, and if people aren't aware of the restrictions and um, that can, it, it can occasionally be problematic. To be fair, to be, um, you know, it's to IntelliJ's credit that I haven't really had a lot of things that I couldn't develop support for in IntelliJ. So the, the, the platform is very flexible, but it can be quite tricky working out how to do that sometimes. Nice. And I assume this is part of it that you can understand if there's a Git dependency on GitHub, which itself is a depths.eden project, you can sort of traverse those transitive dependencies and understand all of them as well. Yeah, to, although to be fair, most of that support just comes from depths itself. So, mm. um, 
So basically I call that to depth and it does all that resolution. So for a Git dependency, you'll actually download it to a specific directory on your, on your hard drive. And then as far as Cursive's concerned, it's really just another source dependency at that point. Right. So most of that sort of trickiness is actually handled by Dips itself. I mean, there are some, there is a bit of trickiness in terms of calling out for Dips. So one thing again is that, for example, Dips provides no way to get uh, progress, get to get progress feedback when it's doing things. So uh, if you have a large project with a lot of dependencies, it can take a long time the first time you you download all the debt, all the dependencies for it. It can take quite a long time for all those to come down. And it, at the moment, it doesn't provide any way to give feedback to the user about what's actually going on. So it just sort of looks like, you know, cursive is kind of sitting there and not doing anything. For, <laughs> you know, it, it can be up to minutes, right, sometimes for a really big project. So I, I haven't seen those sorts of really big projects with depths yet, but um, I'm sure someone out there is at least planning one, even if they're not doing it yet. But certainly with Lining Pin, I mean, I, I have customers who use I guess, you know, they, they have a, a Linegan projects of up to sort of 80 or, or 100 Linegan modules all in one big conceptual project. Um, and uh, it can just take ages for those things to, to synchronize. So again, hopefully Dips will get that at some point. I have an issue in the tracker about it, but yeah, there's, there's not much I can do about that at the moment. Sure. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you mentioned as a big feature was Parinfer V3. So what was involved with that? Right. So... Um, so Parinfer, for those who aren't familiar with it, is, is essentially like an editing mode, I guess. So the main structural editing system for Lisp for a long time has been ParEdit, um, which is where you have a bunch of explicit commands for things like shunting S expressions around and bring them into things, pushing them out of other things. And, and it's very, very powerful. Uh, the problem with it is that it involves a lot of different commands and people have to learn a lot of, um, it's, it kind of feels like learning touch type again when you're learning it. There are a lot of commands. You need to know a lot of key bindings because you have to have all those commands very available to you for it to be very useful. So it's one of these things that when you see someone who's really good at it, it's quite amazing, but it takes a very long time to actually get there. So I think particularly for new users, it's not very accessible and and so Parinfer was an attempt to apply some of the principles behind something like Python, I guess, but basically significant indentation. Um, so the idea is that you should be able to infer where the parentheses go based on the indentation of your code, because most people indent their code fairly regularly. So by using that indentation to work out where the parentheses should go, you can actually move the parentheses around automatically as people are editing their code. Initially, in the Parinfer, the, the earlier versions of Parinfer, there were two modes, basically, which were called paren mode and indent mode. And so paren mode would assume that the parentheses were correct and would correct the indentation based on that. And then indent mode would assume that the indentation was correct and would modify the parentheses based on the indentation. So there were two sort of kind of dual, two duels of the same thing, basically. And that was also fairly confusing for users, I think because it meant they had to understand how Parinfer worked at a fairly kind of deep level. And they had to know when to switch between the two modes to get the effects that they wanted. And I get, I always felt like there should be some kind of hybrid mode in there. So I actually never added support for Paren mode while, while users were editing. I think indent mode was the most generally useful one, but there were times when something like Paren mode would have been very useful and it wasn't available to cursive users. And I'd always planned to go and investigate whether I could do this hybrid mode myself, but um, in the end, I never got around to it. And Sean did that 
over the course of last year, I think, I can't remember exactly what the time frame was, but it was actually surprisingly difficult to do that. But And that's what Par and Fur smart motors that came out in the, in the version 3 of Par and Fur. So what that basically does is that as you're editing your code, it tries to intelligently move the parentheses around based on the changes that you're actually making to the code. And it actually, it works very, very well. There are still some corner cases where it, it doesn't work. But so I actually use it myself. I'm actually pretty competent with PowerEdit, but I use PowerInfer myself all the time now. The nice thing about PowerInfer and Cursive is that you can still use the PowerEdit command. So for the times when it makes sense to still use PowerEdit, you can do that. But most of the time, I just let PowerInfer do all the work. I think a, a good analogy is something like, you know, an automatic car compared to a manual car. So, I mean, I drove up, <laughs> I, I grew up driving stick shifts, right? And I can do it, but why would I want to if I don't have to? And, and an automatic car, in most cases, in nearly all cases, will do at least as good a job as I do, as I would, and sometimes probably better. And there are occasional times when it might be useful to be able to use the gears, but it's uh, there very little. So, Using that same sort of philosophy, I now use Power and Perf for pretty much everything. And it, it works very well. It's very intuitive these days, I think. But and I think the big problem is, is that as, as it becomes more sophisticated, it requires much more knowledge about the changes that the user has made to try to make decisions about how it should do different things. And I think what Sean has been finding is that a lot of editors don't actually provide the level of, the level of integration that is actually required to make Parinfer work correctly, the new version of Parinfer. So I don't know what what the future of it is in a lot of these editors. I know um, Visual Studio Code was one that they were trying to... Um, so I, I think they're actually trying to get support added to Visual Studio Code to provide more events that would actually allow them to develop Parinfer support for it. But I, I don't know what the status of that is now. So integrating the Parinfer smart mode into IntelliJ, I, I would say... After the Linegan integration was probably the hardest thing I've ever actually had to do. So I, I know a lot of because <laughs> users were kind of wondering why Parent Pro support was taking six months or whatever, but it was it was actually extremely difficult to make it work correctly. And I'm very happy with it now that it's done. I think it's it's really good. I've had a lot of very positive feedback about it. So um, new users, but also I think more advanced users who just don't want to have to think about it too much. I think it's really really useful for them. So I'm glad I did it, but it was definitely it was definitely painful. Yeah, there's various editors, like you said, uh, VS Code um, is underway. There's a branch on the Emacs Parinfer mode, which is also sort of working on smart mode support. I'm not quite sure if it's, I don't think it's complete, but it's, um, yeah, they're, they're in that direction. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how far, you know, which platforms are willing to add the information required. I hope, hope all of them do. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's it's a very valuable thing, particularly for new users coming to a Lisp, basically, or, or some sort of S expression based thing. It, balancing the parentheses is is quite difficult, and and it's interesting to see the some of the philosophical objections to Parinfer. I mean, some people kind of feel like balancing parentheses by hand is sort of part of understanding the code. I, I guess I never really felt like that. It just feels like a pain to me, but. Uh, and if, particularly if the editor can work out where the parentheses should go, I'm more than happy for it to just put them there. I don't feel like I'm losing a sort of connection with my program by not doing that. But that some people, some people do feel like it's uh, you know knowing, figuring out where the parentheses should go and putting them there is part of the, the editing experience. So I, I think that's likely to put a lot of people off. 
I guess the, the counter argument to that is that it can be very frustrating when it doesn't do the right thing. And that, and that is definitely true, especially when you're a new user and you don't really understand yet how things should be working. I, I, I can definitely see that that, that would be uh, pretty annoying. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just before we started talking, just like an hour or two before we started this, the State of Closure 29 survey results came out. So there's always one question I know you're pretty interested about on that survey, which is about the primary ClojureScript uh, development environment. So what have you seen there? What's new or what's changed in that space? So basically for Cursive, Cursive has grown slightly. It's got, gone up about a, a percentage point, I guess. So I don't know what the what the margin of error is on these surveys, but there are quite a lot of respondents, I think. But it's uh, it's always a little bit difficult because they're essentially solicited via social media and whatnot. But yeah, so it, it seems fairly stable, I think. Um, Emacs has actually dipped a bit this year and, uh, and Cursive has gone up very slightly. It's interesting to see um, Visual Studio Code actually doing very well. So I know a few people a few people last year complained about the lack of Visual Studio Code, but even a year ago, the support wasn't there. But there's a new mode called Calva, which I think is actually, it seems to be doing really well. The, the author is very active on Slack and um, and it seems to be, he seems to be doing really good things to it. So, and I think a lot of people really like VS Code. So it'll be interesting to see. So, and Vim is pretty much unchanged at about 10%. And uh, there are a few others. It'll be interesting to see what, um, what Nikki Tonsky's support for Sublime Text ends up looking like as well. I think Sublime's a really nice editor. It'd be nice to have better closure support for it. So I'll be interested to see what he comes up with there. But from my point of view, it's just nice to see that cursive uh, cursive use seems to be pretty stable. I guess it's growing growing slightly over the last couple of years. It's been going sort of ticking up by a couple of percentage points a year for the last couple of years after a big jump when I first released it. So, so yeah, it's good. I'm 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 definitely happy happy with those results, and it, and I'm just glad that people are liking cursive as well. It's good. I think it's good for people to have options and and is it and the editing world. I think, and I think. It probably one of my main goals is to make Clojure itself more approachable. So I think having more diverse and more um, more mature editing options are only good for that. Yeah, I agree. So Emacs has got forty six percent, Cursive's got thirty and a half, Vim at about ten, VS Code, which as you said wasn't even on the on the survey before, is at six and a half, Adam at four and a half, um, and then some others with pretty minimal usage. So yeah, you know, Emacs, IntelliJ and Fireplace make up the lion's share of editor usage. Yeah, and and that's been pretty stable for the last kind of the last three years or so probably I would say that those numbers have sort of changed by a couple of percentage points either way, but that that kind of breakdown has been pretty pretty stable for probably three years now, I think. Yeah. And I don't know if we mentioned this explicitly, but Cursive is a commercial product that you sell to companies. And so that means you have a reasonable view of, you know, if you've got, let's say, 30% of people using Clojure are buying a, a license to Cursive or at least uh, registering a free license if they're, they're a student, you have a pretty wide view of what's going on there. So are there any sort of trends in Clojure's adoption, things that you've been surprised by? Um, it's an interesting question, actually, and, and a few people have asked me about this. Someone asked me about this on Reddit a while ago, um, because I am one of the few people probably with actual numbers as to the number of people doing it. I, I think my numbers, and I don't know how useful they are, because 
because of the way my licensing works. So essentially I have petrol licenses. So someone buys a license and then that license is good forever. But you only get a year of updates and then you can update your license after that uh, for you know starting at half the original purchase price to in order to to keep those updates going. So what I don't see is when people stop using cursive because I don't have any kind of tracking. I don't have any centralized license management. But my license management or enforcement is pretty much just a big honesty box, really. Um, because as you mentioned, so I, I actually, you're right, I didn't talk about this at the beginning and I probably should do it. So cursive is a commercial product. It is actually, and it's the, the main, it is my main job. So that's it's basically what I do at this stage, which is nice that there's enough demand that it actually allows me to do that. I, I was I was very unsure whether that would be the case when I when I started out. So I sell license I sell personal licenses which are, have a person's name on them and can be used, but they can be used for anything. They can be used at work. So someone who, for example, is a contractor at a company where the company only buys licenses for their employees, for example, but wants to use it as a contractor, they could buy a personal license. Um, someone who just wants to support me, or someone like an independent contractor who works for themselves. Um, but wants to use it, that's the sort of person who would buy our personal license. And then commercial licenses are, are purchased by companies and they have the company's name on them and they can actually be moved freely between employees as, as people move between projects um, and whatnot. And then I also do have a non-commercial license, which can be used for anything, anything that is not commercial development, basically. So, you know, if you're just wanting to learn Clojure and you want to play around with it, you can just get a non-commercial license and do that. If you're doing open source work, that qualifies. If you're a student using, you know, if you're a student lucky enough to be using Clojure, um, you're welcome to just get a free license to use that as well. Because I'd, I'd like, again, I'd like Clojure to be more approachable and I'd like people when they're getting started, which is sort of when they're most vulnerable, I think, to a lot of the, a lot of the sort of trickiness around tooling and stuff that Clojure can suffer from sometimes. So that people have the easiest options available as they're getting started with the language. I think that really helps to make the language more accessible so I try and do that so I I, I had the non-commercial license because I wanted to try and it, it, it's partly self-promotion partly selfish self-promotion for cursive obviously as well but it, I also I, I feel very strongly that I'd like to try and make Clojure more accessible so it's mostly for that but as a result I mean I really have no way of checking whether anyone is actually doing commercial work or not so so I don't have any sort of annoying license management or anything like that where you have to register your license with me and the IDE phones home to make sure it. So I just assume that if you have a license put in there, then you, that you've paid for it. And and if you're doing non-commercial work, if you say you're doing non-commercial work, I just assume that you are basically, which is quite nice. It means I just sort of relax about all that stuff. But I, so I don't actually have any centralized license management, and I don't really know how many of those licenses are active, how many people are actually using them. So what I have seen is that the curse of sales over the last couple of years have gone up fairly steadily, not by huge amounts. But reasonably steadily, but what I'm really seeing there is I'm kind of seeing it, it could just be turnover in the Clojure ecosystem, right? It could be people coming, using Clojure for a while and then leaving. Um, and I would have no way to know that. So I do see in cursive license sales, I see a sort of gradual growth over time. It's definitely not going crazy, like we're not going to end up with Ruby level adoption that the way we're going at the moment, but it does seem to be kind of gradually expanding. Well, I think the thing that has surprised me most seeing the license sales is how many companies buy a really massive number of licenses. So <laughs> I, I, off the top of my head, I can think of 
probably a couple, I, I can think of four companies, I think, that have bought like 100 plus licenses. You know, that's a big company with a lot of developers. That That's, you know, multiple large development teams or really a, a lot of small development teams um, all using Foja. So that's really nice to see. Like there, there are a lot of companies out there who are very seriously invested in Foja. Um, and that, that, I think, has been the most sort of positive thing that I've seen from license out. Yeah, that's encouraging that Clojure continues to grow. And so what's, uh, I mean, I know at the moment it's just you mainly working on Cursive as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just me at the moment. So what kind of stuff have you got planned for the coming year? Um, I know you probably can't commit to things. but Yeah, yeah. So, right, no promises, obviously. But, yeah, so there are a bunch of major areas that I that need a lot of work in Cursive, I think. I mean, Cursive is really far too much work for a single person. By comparison, JetBrains for PyCharm, which is their Python IDE, they have like um, 15 full-time people. <laughs> that do it. So it's, <laughs> you know, they have like three or four QA people. They, they have, you know, testers and developers and project managers. And it, it, it's uh, a totally different ballgame. So, I mean, as a result, I, I do feel bad sometimes. There are a lot of issues that languish much longer than I would like. And, um, and I always... And so I have a lot of issues in my tracker, and then I also have a huge kind of roadmap, which is mostly in my head at the moment. One thing I would actually really like to do this year is to actually have a proper roadmap laid out. But the, the big thing I'm going to be working on next is improvements to the REPL support, and in particular, um, improvements to the ClojureScript REPL. So the, the ClojureScript REPL story in cursive is still not great at the moment. So if you want to start a REPL for JVM Clojure, it's pretty much just you set up your project and you press a button and you, you get a ripple. ClojureScript is still very far from that. Like you still have to understand how all the tooling works to even get a ripple going. So I, that's probably the next main thing that I'm that I'm trying to fix. And then I would also really like to fix a lot of the refactoring support that people kind of expect to work, particularly if they're used to working in IntelliJ. So things like, you know, when you move files around in the project view, that should refactor the namespaces and adjust all the requires and things like that. There are a lot of refactorings that require rewriting the namespace form, and that's actually really tricky in CLJC. Um, that, that's really the, the all the edge cases around that is what's holding me back from just finally sort of sitting down and doing that. It can be very, very tricky. And I think, so for example, um, CIDR with CLJ Refactor actually has much much more sophisticated support than Cursive for doing that at the moment, but it only supports... Clojure itself, it doesn't support Clojure script or and much of CLJC. So that's definitely something I'd like to try and fix in the current year. And one other thing that I've been meaning to do for a while that I would really like to do is I, I would actually like to have a feature voting system in the IDE itself because there are a lot of things that I could be working on and my time is, is relatively limited in terms of it just compared to the amount of stuff I have to do. So I've done a few kind of informal Twitter surveys and I tend to ask people on my mailing list and so on about about what they would like to see and people come to me with requests, but it's not very kind of systematic. So what I would ideally like is within the IDE to have a way in which probably what I'll do is I'll link it to GitHub issues. So GitHub issues that have like a feature request tag that I'll put on there. Those will be available in the IDE and people can say, you know, I would like these three features and this one's much more important for me than the other one. So I can get... I can get some sort of quantifiable feedback from users about what the things I would actually like to see. 
it's a little bit tricky for me to, to gather that information at the moment because I don't require users to have accounts with me, even to buy licenses. They don't actually have to create an account with me. Um, I try to philosophically, I try to capture as little data about people as possible. But that's actually that actually makes this a little bit tricky. So I'm still trying to figure out how that will work. But ideally, it would be nice for users to be able to say, "I'll probably my my vision of it is to kind of have two sections. One where you can say, these are the new features that I would like to see." And these are the ones that are important to me. And also just to be able to vote on general bugs and sort of like, you know, paper cut kind of issues, basically. You know, this thing really annoys me. And hopefully that means that I can dedicate my time to getting the most kind of bang for buck in terms of what people actually want to see in cursive. Great. Well, I'm a daily cursive user. I forgot to mention that, but, uh, you know, I use it all the time. I really enjoy it. And so I'm yeah, looking forward to seeing what you come up with in the next year yeah I, I think you may be the you may be the only person who's filed more issues on my tracker than i have I <laughs> yes possibly yeah and the, the closure script ripple stuff uh, especially um i'm very very much looking forward to that because i've always found that a little bit well in fact i've never quite managed to get it set up uh, successfully so yeah i'm yes my, my dirty secret is that even so i actually do use a bit of closure script the the license fulfillment stuff for cursor is all closure script running in in aws lambda so i i do do some closure script development and my my dirty secret is i don't actually use a ripple myself just because i, I can never be bothered to set everything up so I, I really need to fix that right that's a pretty bad sign so great well uh thanks very much for talking and uh yeah well be looking forward to next release of Cursive. Okay, thanks very much for having me. Thanks, bye. Bye.